Hi, this is Kevin Maloney from Grace Road Church. Thanks for listening to our sermon from Luke's Gospel. Luke writes to give a detailed account of the teaching, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He compiled this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to impart faith and assuage doubt. So our hope for you as you listen is that you would sense that the picture of Jesus painted by Luke is compelling, that what you hear would give you confidence in Jesus, and that your doubts would be diminished as these truths resonate with your heart. For more messages from this series and others, you can head to our website, www.graceroadchurch.org, for audio, video, and text resources to help you walk more closely with Jesus. Good morning, Grace Road. We're going to Luke chapter 16 today. Luke chapter 16, and let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you knowing that you're there to hear us, not because we're worthy to approach you, but because we brought, we've been brought near by the blood of your Son. We know that left to ourselves, we would be outside your grace and your mercy, but we are near. We're, we are on the inside because you've pursued us with your love. So we come to you knowing that you're a good father who can, can meet our needs. And, and we come to you and, and we pray for grace for the two families in our church that lost loved ones this week. We pray for the Allens who are mourning the sudden loss of TJ. We pray that you'd comfort them as they grieve, but we, we thank you for their hope that, that this year you have been drawing TJ to yourself. Uh, we pray for the Crawfords who lost Wanda this week. And, and as they grieve the loss of, of that mighty woman of faith, we pray that they would rejoice in the solid hope of the resurrection. Uh, we also pray for our nation as this week we head into an election week. Uh, we pray that you would give us leaders who would govern as close to your ways as, as people can. Give us leaders who will work to allow your church to remain free and unhindered by, by government leaders who care for the unborn, who uphold justice for the least and for the oppressed. And we pray that you keep us as a church from being divided and as angry as our nation is. Help us to repent well when it's revealed that our idols are the same as people who don't know you. We pray that you'd free us from every form of fear and worry going into this week and give us complete confidence in the ultimate triumph of Jesus over all things independent of what happens on Tuesday. And now in your word, as we go to a, a tough passage where we hear your son talk about marriage and divorce, I, I pray that you give us a radical devotion to Jesus. Help us to want to follow his words. Help us to believe and obey and show ourselves to be your children. Help us not to be the people who disobey when things get hard, when temptation comes. We pray that you would work by your gospel to refresh our homes and our marriages, that you would restore a devotion to the marriage covenant among us, bring about repentance for our wanderings, and help us to be conformed to the image of Christ because of our time in your word today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in Luke 16, and today we're going to look at one verse in Luke that packs an awful lot of truth into one sentence spoken by Jesus. Uh, but first, it's important to remember the context here. Jesus is at a dinner party with the Pharisees. He's there with the old guard, religious leaders in Israel, and his disciples. And Jesus has been asked why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. So he tells the stories of, of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, uh, all to demonstrate God's heart for the lost. So Jesus is saying that he is here to redeem and to restore. He's here to bring people back to their purpose, which is living in relationship with and conformity to God and his ways. 
At the time, people were accusing Jesus of being morally lax and maybe even watering down the Bible because for some reason, all of these people who they thought were too sinful were being drawn to Jesus. And so they accused Jesus of being really liberal in terms of who he spent his time with. So Jesus makes it clear that nothing that he is doing should be interpreted as watering down or getting rid of one pen stroke from the word of God. In Luke 16, 17, he says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So nothing that Jesus is doing is contrary to the Bible. He appears to be lax in compromising God's commands for for purity by, by hanging out with these people, but purity isn't staying away from the broken. It's restoring them. So Jesus is upholding God's word. And then Jesus drops one bomb of truth to make the dinner party even more awkward. Luke 16, verse 18, he says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So just this one sentence seems disconnected from everything else that's happening. I mean, who's even talking about divorce here? But what Jesus is doing out by laying, in, laying out in simplest forms his teaching on divorce and remarriage, he's showing that it was the Pharisees who were watering down God's word. They were doing the very thing that, that they were accusing Jesus of doing. Uh, the Pharisees had developed a very loose doctrine of divorce and remarriage. And the Bible has a number of important texts about marriage and divorce, but if you select out of context and don't bring the, the whole body of biblical teaching to bear on it, you can make the Bible say almost anything you want. So so ignoring many of the passages about marriage and divorce, the Pharisees gravitated toward Deuteronomy 24, which is very much God's word, but it's just not all of God's word on the subject. And so in Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house, and then it goes on to describe some laws for divorce and remarriage. And the Pharisees gravitated toward that verse, and they said, here's the law for divorce and remarriage. A man can divorce his wife if he finds some indecency in her. And though there was a little bit of debate among the Pharisees about what that meant, they generally interpreted the word indecency very, very broadly. In fact, a man who influenced these Pharisees was a man who died in 10 AD by the name of Hillel. And and he taught that this verse meant that a man had an absolute right to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, if he found anything that he wasn't pleased with in her. And that reason could be as small as him being displeased with the fact that she burned dinner. True story. And then, of course, the the way they interpreted it was that the women had no such right. And if they could divorce their husbands, the bar was much higher for, for what it would take for them to be able to do so. So the Pharisees had this really loose teaching on what constitutes grounds for divorce, even by today's standards. You know, that, that burning dinner thing is, is the lamest excuse for a divorce ever, and I think I've heard a lot of lame excuses. I've never heard anything that small, even in our day, as the reason that someone wants to leave their marriage. But these same guys who held this position were the guys that were accusing Jesus of watering down God's word and being too loose with it. So Jesus drops this teaching. And from what we know, nobody in that day held this strict of a view on divorce and remarriage. Nobody did. But Jesus is 
the king of a new kingdom. He's the chief interpreter of God's law. He's the ultimate ethicist for the people of God. And, and he drops some teaching that shows way more adherence to all of God's word than the Pharisees would ever show. So Jesus is being accused of being really liberal because he's hanging out with sinners, but then he teaches something that's wildly conservative so he doesn't fit their boxes at all. And by the way, we, we hear often this week especially that Jesus didn't fit the boxes because that's absolutely true. We hear that he was too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives, which is also true, and it's something that, that I've said often. But that also doesn't mean that Jesus fits neatly into a centrist box where he always came up with compromise positions between competing groups. Jesus was too conservative for the liberals, and he was too liberal for the conservatives, but also at times, he was too conservative for the conservatives, and he was too liberal for the liberals. He didn't fit perfectly anywhere, not even in the center. And so right when these Pharisees are accusing him of being liberal, he stakes out a position on marriage that is way more strict than any of them held. And so the Pharisees hear this, and their minds are blown. Who is this guy? And when we read this, we've got to ask ourselves, why on this issue? And Jesus is too liberal for the conservatives on issues like Sabbath-keeping and his associations with sinners, so why is he so much more strict than even the conservatives on divorce and remarriage? Why this issue? And so... As we discuss it, the goal will be to do three things this morning, won't be to do everything, Uh, but number one, we want to give a broad overview of what Jesus thought about marriage that made him so strict on this issue. And and by the way, because he is God, he's right in what he thinks about marriage. So, So in trying to figure out what Jesus thought about marriage, we're not just looking for one opinion among others, we're we're looking for the view of marriage that will shape our view of marriage. The second thing we want to do is we want to give a broad overview of biblical teaching on divorce. Uh, This verse in Luke is not the whole of Jesus' teaching on it. This is not all that the scripture says about it. So we'll try to bring many of the parts together to paint a a broader picture. And then the third thing, although this won't be a third section of the message, but but all along the way, we'll deal with some practical considerations for, for practicing this high view of marriage as Christians among the Christian community. And, and let me just make clear up, up front that it is impossible to say everything that needs to be said about marriage and divorce and remarriage in a single sermon. The fact that some things won't be addressed today doesn't mean that they have no place in this discussion. It just means that there are time limits to the sermon. And I know many of you think I exceed those time limits already. So, so we can't say everything that there is to say about these things. Um, but we're in good company because Jesus didn't say everything that there is to say about this in this one sentence at the dinner party either. So we won't be able to discuss every nuance and every what if. Uh, we'll be painting with really broad brushes, which is certainly what Jesus did, but, but I know that may leave some questions unanswered. So, so why so strict? What is it about marriage that made Jesus take this position? Jesus often took controversial stands, again, all over the spectrum on issues. On the the Sabbath, he didn't abide by the hundreds of pages of extra rules for Sabbath-keeping that the Pharisees had added on top of the Bible, And, and that was because the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for human flourishing, for rest and rejuvenation, and they had made it an oppressive system of rules. By their modifications, they made it something that it wasn't. They made it do the opposite of what it was supposed to do. So Jesus 
gladly oppose their position. The Sabbath was a day of rest, so Jesus said we should make it one. Also, here he is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners because they are the sick in need of a physician, and he wants to see them flourish. People were made to be in relationship with God, so Jesus goes near to them so they can be. His position on the issue of hanging out with sinners was tied with his desire to make people what they were meant to be. Jesus knows that the flourishing of humanity is strengthened by marriages being strong and permanent and not easy to dissolve. Marriages were meant to be clung to and fought for and stayed in. They create a maximum flourishing for humanity when done right. I mean, Jesus has already proven he won't be for rules for rules' sake. He won't be strict for strictness' sake. So we can't accuse Jesus of just being strict in general. But he is for truth. He is righteous. And if true righteousness is looser than the religious crowd or if it's stricter than the religious crowd, so be it. What mattered most was not aligning with a group or with a party or checking all the boxes for the religious elite, but truth mattered. Love for God and man mattered. Obedience to God's law and God's pattern mattered. So what's so important about marriage? Why, why this vehement defense? And now before we go further, I know that there are a lot of singles at Grace Road, and, and there may be a tendency among you to tune out the things that, that we say in this message. Um, so let me just disclaim ahead of time that, that nothing I say should make you as a, fingle, as a single feel like less of a Christian or an incomplete person. Jesus was single, and he was a pretty good Christian. So, so we know that you can be a good Christian and be single. You are a vital part of the church, a vital part of the body of Christ. Marriage is not essential for your personhood or for your value. And, and some may never marry, and they are no less vital to the flourishing of humanity or the flourishing of the church. But I also note that many of our singles desire to marry someday. You will marry someday. And so I'd urge you to practice biblical wisdom today. And biblical wisdom involves not only learning what will benefit me now, today, something I can consume, but also learning something that will benefit me as I grow and I, I move through other seasons of life. Allow whatever is true and biblical that I say today to shape your choice in a spouse if, if you're pursuing one or waiting for one. Allow it to shape your expectations for marriage if, if you're hoping to be married. So what is marriage? What is marriage according to Jesus? When Jesus is asked about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, he doesn't quote from Deuteronomy 24, but he goes all the way back to the core of what a marriage is. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. He goes back there. They come and they ask him, Jesus, can we divorce for any reason? And he says, well, what's a marriage? So in Genesis 2, the context here is that God has spoken everything into existence on six days of creation, and on several of those days, God pronounced a benediction over his creation. He created everything. He said, it is good. It is good. It is good. He just kept saying that on those creative days. And then God makes man, he makes Adam, all by himself. And God's design was that humanity would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but Adam is all alone. And so in Genesis 2.18, it says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God's saying it is good, it is good, it is good over his whole creation. And then over Adam, the single guy, he says, that's not good. So God looks at man and says, he should not be alone. 
Maybe you've known certain bachelors that cause you to agree. You go to the bachelor pad and you find all kinds of evidence that it's not good for man to be alone. Dishes stacked high in the sink, odors that go unnoticed, a shower that makes you wonder what color it originally was. And you've probably said it's not good for man to be alone, even, even if you don't believe the Bible. But in this case, this, this anti-benediction or this malediction that God pronounces, where he says it's not good for man to be alone, it's not a, a pronouncement of bachelorhood being evil. He pronounces this over the fact that man can't accomplish his purpose on earth. The be fruitful and multiply purpose, he can't accomplish that all by himself. So God says, I'll make a helper. Now, don't get tripped up on that language. We can read helper and think, yeah, so this means Adam's superior, she's inferior, she's the little helper, the Bible's just being chauvinist here. But we often ask for help from a superior, I hire a guy to help me do my taxes because he's superior. He has a superior knowledge of those things, and I don't like jail. I, I hire a doctor as a helper because as much as I like to convince myself that I can be a pretty good doctor for myself because of Google, in reality, I know that I need someone who's my superior to help me. So, so helper does not imply superior or inferior at all. Um, Eve is the kind of helper who's there to be a complement to Adam not an inferior, not a superior, a human who's, who's not a man who compliments the man. Someone who can help with what he just can't do. This is, is no statement of inferiority to call her a helper. So we skip down to Genesis 2, 21. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Adam looks at Eve and he loves her. There's lots of good romance here. He possibly sings the words of the first love song here when he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and Moses here writes for us, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to, or cleave to, or be joined to his wife, and they shall be one. This language points to the fact that marriage is supposed to be a deep and permanent for this life thing. There's a deep fundamental connection that's made in marriage. So marriage is made of, of a complementing pair of, of a man and a woman. There's a connection between the two that's deep and abides for this life. It says that they're naked and unashamed, which is a blessing on physical intimacy and sexual intimacy within marriage, but also a call to be fully known by the other. These are two people who know one another completely, who are vulnerable to each other, who are joined as one. So we have the first wedding in the Bible. The two are married, Adam sings, God is there as the witness to the whole thing. And verse 24 shows that this is the pattern for all marriages. This is what happens in a marriage. God is there joining the two together. The husband and the wife are made one. And now there's a new primary family unit that's formed as they leave father and mother and cleave together. And Jesus protects that vehemently. For human community to thrive, marriages must thrive. 
And again, this doesn't mean that singles are, are less a part of the community, but it says that thriving marriages are an important element to the community. This also doesn't mean that no person can thrive outside of a healthy family because God gives grace. And plenty of people thrive in difficult and broken marriages and in broken homes. We, we don't want to pronounce doom over someone who grows up without an intact family. God is very, very gracious. But the general way of things is that a community thrives only when marriages remain intact and thrive. This is true of the broader community, and this is true of, of a church community. And because God is doing something unique in joining a married couple together, we should see marriages as uniquely his work. Just like Adam and Eve's marriage was uniquely his work, it, it, all marriages are uniquely God's work. To treat them as easy to leave is to insult God. It's to miss out on what he's doing in a marriage. And this is one of the tragedies of the, of the ways that we've redefined what a marriage is supposed to be in our days. We tend to believe in our day that a marriage is a union that's designed to fulfill the self. Or that it's a romantic union only. And again, romance is good. And, and marriage, again, is the only place where there's a righteous place for the fulfillment of, of sexual desire and sexual intimacy. But we have tended to say in our day that marriage is what two people who are, are really in love do. That, that you marry the person you're really in love with, and then when the excitement love and the romantic love inevitably fade, when sickness comes or when age comes or weakness comes, or real sin comes and difficulties come in, we think that we're justified in, in getting out because it doesn't seem like it's fulfilling its purpose anymore, which is to fulfill me. But the purpose of marriage is far more than to fulfill an individual's desire for romantic love. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while imprisoned, wrote a wedding sermon for his niece. And uh, it's, it's long, I won't quote the whole thing, there's a, a link to it in the sermon manuscript. But in it, he wrote, God is guiding your marriage. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joined you together in the sight of God and man. He goes on and says, love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. So marriage can't be sustained by love and excitement and romance. Love and excitement and romance are, are good and are to be sustained by marriage. God made this. God joined you together. And, and within that permanent abiding context, you can work on rekindling romance and clearing out relational clutter. 
forgiving wrongs by applying the gospel, pursuing deeper intimacy. And by saying God joined us together, so, so that, that's what all we'll ever do when this is hard. We'll work on this. You can find that love rekindled again and again and again. But if you expect to stay married as long as you always feel totally in love, you'll inevitably hit a hard time or a boring time or a time of sickness or poverty or strain, and and you'll say, our marriage is no longer being sustained. So God made marriage. God joined you together with your spouse, and therefore Jesus says to leave that union and pursue another is to commit adultery. This is not the kind of thing that you bail out on because she burned the dinner or because he is a Patriots fan. You, You get him counseling for that, you don't leave him for that. But marriage is, is an even bigger deal than even this. You know, we fast forward to the New Testament where the Apostle Paul interprets that Genesis 2 passage for us. And in Ephesians 5.31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is not only a core unit for human flourishing, But the design of marriage is that it would be a union that paints a picture of Christ in the church. The whole passage that precedes this, that we don't have time to to dive into, calls husbands to love and lead like Jesus. It calls wives to respect and be led by godly husbands like the church is by Christ. And so marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman to reflect to their children and to their community, to their church, and to their world something of the love that Jesus has for his people. And remember, Jesus' love is not just sentimental love. It's not just feelings. When we say that Jesus loves you, we don't just mean that he feels warm and fuzzy when he thinks about you. We mean the gospel when we say Jesus loves you. We mean that he gave his life for you. We mean that he endures with you. We mean that he went to Calvary's cross to pay the price for all of your sins, to cleanse you and to make you right with him at great cost to himself. He gave everything so you could be forgiven and have life if you have faith in him. And the love of marriage is supposed to reflect that. Even beyond the cross, he continues to endure with us patiently in his love. He loves us relentlessly. He is attentive to us. He's always interceding to the Father for us. It's that gritty, active, sweating, and bleeding kind of love that Jesus has. And and that's what's supposed to be reflected in marriage. But it's not joyless. We also know that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So so in marriage, we are to, to give it all to the other. We are to love like Jesus loved. But part of how Jesus loved is he did it for the joy that was set before him. So in marriage, we're to strive to be full of of joy so that we're reflecting his love well. So staying married is important. It's important for honoring the fact that marriage was God's work and to divide it is to divide what he joined. Staying married is important for human flourishing. It's important for kids. All the stats say that it's important for the diminishing of poverty. There, There are all kinds of benefits that marriage brings It's important for accomplishing side-by-side God's purposes for us in the world. But far beyond that, it's important because marriage was designed to paint a picture of Christ's love for the church. 
And so just like working to keep rules on the Sabbath, working like crazy, following hundreds and hundreds of rules, went against the design for the Sabbath day. Just like Jesus keeping away from sinful people would have gone against the design for people. They were supposed to be in relationship with God. To treat marriage lightly and to cling to it loosely and to allow for the leaving of marriage very, very easily would go against the design of what marriage is for. Marriage is designed to reflect the love of Christ. That also means that because marriage is designed to reflect the love of Christ, at times we will be loving spouses that are unlovable, just like Jesus loves us when we're unlovable. At times it won't be easy. At times you might be tempted to dream of the freedom that would come from being out of this whole thing. And if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, you might be tempted to think that your marriage is uniquely boring or that it's uniquely hard or that it's uniquely challenging. And let me just say, I do have somewhat of a unique perspective on this because I I do sit in the counseling office with a lot of people and I counsel an awful lot of people with Instagram perfect marriages and it is not often what it seems. And we can make a lot of things look really good on Instagram. And this is something huge for all of us to know. And I forgot which verse says this, but social media is not real life. Social media is not real life. That's, that's not the real thing. And just remember that we, as the bride of Christ, have not been easy for him to be married to. He's had to be patient with us. His love is often not reciprocated. So the love of Christ can still be reflected in a difficult marriage or a marriage in a difficult season. So don't treat difficulties as some calling to get out. So that's where we start. This marriage is a permanent union for this life. And to leave it and marry another is to commit adultery, Jesus says. So even if the state says you were legally divorced, to leave that marriage without biblical grounds, which we'll unpack in a second, is to commit adultery when you remarry. Now, we want to do life among people who treat marriage seriously. Like it's not a temporary thing. Like it's not a flimsy thing. Like it, like it isn't something that we're committed to as long as it feels right. This is a covenant designed to reflect the covenant of God's faithfulness that, that we are in if we're in Jesus. And honestly, nothing is more discouraging than than the stream of people who say that they believe these things at the altar, but then when times get hard, they bail quickly. It reveals that we don't really believe, just like adultery reveals that we don't believe the things we say we believe. And so so back to the singles. You, You hear this and you say, all right, I'm single. Does all of this talk about the exalted role of marriage mean that I have to get married or that I should be planning on and working toward getting marriage, getting married? Well, not necessarily, again, because of Jesus. Jesus was single, and if our standard for holiness is higher than Jesus, we might want to lower that bar a little bit. We, we don't want to set a bar of, of righteous Christian living that Jesus didn't live up to. That would be an inaccurate bar. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, who was single, wrote this. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says that God has gifted some for singleness. 
And the joke is that that's kind of the, the gift that nobody wants. It's like the white elephant gift of all the gifts that God gives out. But, but the truth is there are some who are actually content single. They don't have unbeatable feelings of loneliness. They don't have really strong desires for, for physical intimacy. At least they can handle it. There are people out there that God has gifted for that kind of life. But in reality, that's not most. So God may give you that gift and lead you towards singleness. He may lead you to be single by not providing someone, um, and, and that's his leadership right there. But it is wise for most singles to plan on being married and to pursue marriage. Now, this doesn't mean you rush into it. Get some good pre-marriage counseling where, where you're open to the counselor talking you out of it if necessary. Only consider marriage to a Christian, 2 Corinthians 6.14, a Christian who shares your view of Jesus and the Bible and authority and marriage. Treat marriage like you're supposed to treat it, like it's a lifelong covenant. Don't rush into it. But also don't be too hesitant to commit. Plan for it. Look forward to it. Learn about it. Develop the godliness and the character you'll need for it. And then make some moves to get there prayerfully. I think the two mistakes we make are that we rush into marriage in desperation and we lower our standards. That, that's bad. But then the other mistake is that we are so risk-averse. We are so hyper-introspective. We, we so need a 100% sure feeling that this is the one, the type of feeling that most people never get. And we have such impossibly high standards that we don't commit. Well, that's a risk too. In fact, underneath that, the failure to commit or the unwillingness to, to take a risk, I think we're just unsure that Jesus will be enough for us in the future um, so that we can accept any risk at all. We almost think marriage is the most important thing. It's, it's really, really important. But the most important thing is Jesus, and he's secure. So that frees us up to take some reasonable risks, and there always is some risk. Again, some rush in, but then others just need to put a ring on it. Get some wise counsel to guide you which side you're on. Are, are you going too fast? Are you going too slow? But it's wise to move toward it for most singles. So marriage is a good thing. Jesus defends it. Again, Luke 16, 18, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so when Luke recounts Jesus talking about marriage and divorce, he doesn't name any exceptions to the law that you can't divorce and remarry. What Jesus says in Luke doesn't contain the exception, and it's the same in Mark's account. So, so the general teaching on marriage from Jesus is that marriage is one man and one woman for life. But then in Matthew's gospel, it recounts something that Jesus said at another time in his ministry, and he says this. In Matthew 5.32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So why the discrepancy? Why does Luke seem so absolute? Seems to say no divorce and remarriage ever. But then Matthew seems to allow an exception for sexual immorality. And there's some debate uh, about the reasons for that. Uh, some Christians who, who have a very high view of the Bible, like I do, and, and that I admire very much, would say that the exceptions are just for the betrothal period. 
Uh, in their day, you would get engaged, and, and it was more serious than an engagement today. It was, it was essentially like a marriage without physical intimacy, and the only way you could break off that engagement was through divorce. That betrothal would last one year, and if during that year your fiancé cheated on you, then you could divorce them, and there wouldn't be any sin in that. Some see Matthew's exception clause as only talking about that. And they would say this is why Matthew could say that Joseph was a just man when he considered divorcing Mary when she was pregnant during their betrothal period. And, and these people make some serious arguments, and I'm sure they're born from a desire for marriage to be every bit as permanent as Jesus calls for it to be in Luke. Then the other position which seems to be the majority position among serious Bible scholars in history, and, and the one that, that I line myself up with, is that Luke lays out the general principle, but it's not a principle with no exceptions. Those are brought in from, from the other scriptures. Historically, it seems like the majority opinion is that divorce and remarriage is allowed in cases of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, which would include you know, abusive situations. The Westminster Confession of Faith and, and the Westminster divines who wrote it were definitely rigorous students of the Bible. They took the scriptures seriously. They said, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So they allowed for divorce and remarriage in the case of adultery. But they, they gave a caution and they said, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. So they said, watch out, because people like to study arguments to come up with reasons to get a divorce. They say, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. So, so that seems to be the majority position in history and, and the one that I share. And though there are some differences of opinion on this at Grace Road, whether divorce and remarriage is allowed after adultery or not, and, and by the way, it's okay to disagree with your pastor on some things, I think that as much as we want to honor the role of marriage by insisting on its permanence, we also run the risk of going beyond the Bible in what we require. And I do think that the Bible does allow rare exceptions to the permanence of marriage for this life. Also, by allowing divorce as a last resort in those rare circumstances, we are preserving the meaning of marriage. So if you have one spouse who is like unrepentantly, actively committing adultery against the covenant, or one spouse who's abandoning the covenant altogether or being violent with a spouse as a form of abandonment or has deserted the spouse altogether and just left, I don't think we honor the institution of marriage that was made for human flourishing by insisting that those marriages stay together. So again, stressing that divorce is not the best or first option, I believe that there are texts which would imply that divorce followed by remarriage is sometimes permissible after all attempts at, re at reconciliation have been exhausted. So Matthew 5, 31, 32 again, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In the Old Testament, someone caught committing adultery would be put to death. It was a capital crime. 
But in our day, under grace and under non-theocratic governments, it isn't a capital crime. So, so the adulterer continues to live in our day. But it seems that the innocent spouse is allowed to remarry just as they would have been allowed to in the Old Testament because their spouse had been put to death. I think they're allowed to remarry today even if that previous spouse is alive. So it seems that the exception here, that except on the ground of sexual immorality, is given as a provision so that remarriage can occur without it being sin after one spouse committed adultery and ended up severing the marriage. Now this allowance doesn't mean that divorce must occur. We've seen lots of marriages put back together after adultery, after long processes of confession and forgiveness and rebuilding trust. There's often hope for a marriage, even when it seems like it's bleakest. But there are times when a marriage has been broken by adultery and it can't be put back together. And divorce does seem to be allowed in those situations. The other situation where it seems to be allowed is the desertion or the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. This is 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12. Uh, Paul writes, and he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. God has called you to peace. So in verse 15, you have this unbelieving spouse that leaves the other spouse, that abandons them. In those cases, he says that the abandoned party is not bound. It seems that that abandoned party can remarry. And I think it's important to contrast verses 15 and 13. In, in verse 15, one spouse is abandoning the other, but then the opposite of abandonment in verse 13 is consenting to live with her, which is literally translated, he's pleased to dwell or he's pleased to be together with her. Paul is saying that if an unbelieving spouse is pleased to keep on living with his, uh, with his believing spouse, then the believing spouse shouldn't leave. So if, if you have a, a couple where one becomes a Christian and the other doesn't, that should not be grounds for divorce. But then he says, but if the unbelieving spouse leaves, the believer is free. And I think that does mean free to remarry. So in situations where one spouse is not pleased to be together with the other and abandons them, remarriage seems to be allowed. But that phrase, pleased to be together with, does imply that they're willing to live within the bounds of a biblical marriage. You know, so if that spouse is willing to stay in the same house but is going to be committing adultery, or is willing to stay in the same house but is going to be openly hostile within the home, staying there but really not being pleased to be together with them, then abandonment can still occur under situations like that. So abandonment can occur through leaving altogether but also through abuse or through blatant disregard for what a marriage is. You know, his, a husband who physically abuses his wife is abandoning that union. He's not being pleased to dwell with her. And, and there are several ways that that abandonment can occur. So while I agree that divorce is a last resort, 
and that, that most marriages, however they've been broken by sin, can be healed and restored, I do believe that divorce followed by remarriage is allowed in cases of adultery or real forms of abandonment. And again, there are different convictions at our church within reason uh, on those issues. At times we might have some pastors who are willing to officiate one wedding and others who are not. And, and that's something that we'll be comfortable with living in community together. But certainly, we can all agree that nobody should take divorce lightly. You know, Tim Keller says that it's not like changing our clothes when we get divorced and find a new spouse. You know, it's getting a divorce is more like an amputation, he says. Amputations should be really rare, and they should be avoided if possible. Doctors that are really quick to amputate for small causes are really bad doctors, but occasionally an amputation is necessary. Now, if you follow the analogy, I think in our day, often we amputate for mosquito bites, but if we're going to amputate, it should only be a last resort. So I know there, there's a lot that's been unsaid here, maybe just some, some closing words and a few loose ends. Uh, first, a word to the divorced and remarried. Um, some of you might be hearing this and thinking that, man, well, the path to our marriage involved some sin, the way I'm hearing this, and it might have. I would encourage you to confess that to God and to each other and not pretend that that isn't the case. But also know that God is a forgiving and gracious God who forgives sin. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. So, so if you look at the way you got into your marriage, however you got into it, if you look into it and say, man, there was real sin involved in that, that doesn't mean that your marriage is not real. It doesn't mean that you are in a perpetual state of adultery. It's a real marriage. And with sin confessed, you can know that it isn't cursed. It isn't less binding or less real. Even if you look back and you say we sinned, that, that doesn't mean it's not a real marriage. Even if you look back and say, we got into this marriage, but man, we, we made all kinds of bad decisions to get into this. It's still a real marriage. Promises that are made in a state of confusion are still binding. I mean, if a person goes out and gets drunk and then runs out a huge credit card debt, their debt is very real. That's not a pretend debt. I mean, just ask Visa. They're not going to say that that's pretend. That's real. And your marriage is not a fake marriage. Your covenant is no less binding if you took all kinds of wrong steps to get into it. And while the initial act of remarrying may have been adultery in some of your cases, the marriage can be blessed by God because he's merciful, because he forgives sins that we confess. And so you can count on God being with you and being for you and being for your marriage as a good one that honors him. You know, a word just to the married people in general, so much is at stake in doing everything possible to hold together your marriage and to make your home healthy. Now, now I would say, don't stay in an abusive home. If, if you're being physically harmed or radically demeaned, being abandoned within the home like that, it doesn't honor the institution of marriage to be abused because of your marriage. So use the tools that are available to you. Call the police. You know, call the elders of the church. Don't feel like you're somehow honoring marriage by allowing abuse to continue. That's actually dishonoring marriage. But for many others, you'll just find yourself at times in a hard marriage. Well, get help early. Be real humble. Be willing to confess sin. Be willing to listen. Stop always trying to be right. 
clean out the relational clutter that's building up, like people who believe that the gospel has real healing power for sin and that that really changes things, that really changes lives, it changes relationships, it changes marriages. A word to the single, I think you'll hear different things about marriage. You know, sometimes all you'll hear is that it's a romantic fairy tale and, and that's overblown. Sometimes all you'll hear is about how hard marriage can be. And honestly, that can be overblown too. Because a lot can be done ahead of time. Not to guarantee anything. This isn't a prosperity gospel. Things can go wrong for people who do all the right things. But you can do a lot ahead of time to make a good marriage much more likely. Sometimes you check all the boxes, you do everything right, and the marriage still goes badly. But more often than not, that's not the case. So pursue Jesus during these years. Pursue contentment. And then pursue marriage while you're striving for, for purity as you head there, get outside counsel from older trusted Christians when, when you're considering someone, grow in humility, grow in grace, and then marry someone who's doing the same. And then probably, though not always, things will be fine. Marriage is supposed to be really good. And it can be really good. It can be really enjoyable. You can be glad you're there. It's, it's meant to be that way. Now also, again, because this was a broad overview, just, just like Jesus' statement in Luke, there was a lot more unsaid than said. There's more to talk about and more to learn, and we can't do it all in one sermon. You know, a couple books you might want to read would be The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, which I find really helpful. Uh, when Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. These are two books that we hand out all the time around Grace Road because I think they give a good view of what marriage is supposed to be and what it can be. But overall, let's be a church community where, where we want marriages to thrive, where we help marriages to thrive, and we really believe that a lot depends on that. Human flourishing depends on that, and painting a picture of the love of Christ for his church depends on that. So let's pray. Well, Father, your word is always good, but we know that uh, the word that Jesus spoke today is a hard word for, for many people. And we know that when your son speaks hard words that demand obedience, that at times can reveal something about us that we don't like to see. It can reveal that we are our own gods. It'll reveal that we will worship and obey you as long as you don't challenge us, as long as you don't call us to anything other than what we were planning on doing already. And so in that way, your laws are good gifts to expose us, to, to reveal to us what we really are so that we can take that and, and run with it to you and trust again in your grace and mercy. And so we thank you that the final word isn't the guilty verdict of your law, but it's the grace of the gospel. Thank you for the perfect faithfulness of Jesus and his death for our sins so that we could be forgiven of every type of unfaithfulness. Thank you that because of the cross, there are no sins that we've committed that can't be forgiven. There are no people that can't be restored to a state of grace. Thank you that you're God who takes our sins and our stains and nails them to the cross, puts them to death, and then in rising again, you declare that they are forgiven and we're made completely new. So help us to trust in you and your redemption today and help us all to sense that we need it, whether our marriages are strong or weak or, or non-existent. We're all in need of Jesus as our Savior and we thank you that you are that Savior. We pray also that you'd help us to turn from all of our wrong views of marriage. Some of us have made too much of it. 
And we've said that it will save us and it will satisfy us. Now only have peace once I get one. Some have made too little of it. And we've said we'll get rid of our marriage if they don't satisfy. So Spirit, we just pray that you would fill us and that you would guide us to cherish and strengthen marriage and to grow our marriages to better reflect your love for your people. Make us a church that honors you in the way that we live out your commands about marriage. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.